Hello and welcome to Hillsdale College's online course on the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm John J. Miller, Director of the Dow Journalism Program here at the college, joined today by President Larry Arn, President of our college, a teacher of politics here. And before we jump in to what you talked about in the lecture on the U.S. Supreme Court, I want to talk about something that happened on campus a few months ago. We're having this conversation in 2016. And just a few months ago, our commencement speaker at graduation was U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Why did we want him here? Uh, well, I wanted him because he's the greatest man I know. Um, I've thought that for many, many years. I've known him a long time. Uh, he is uh, an inspired servant of the Constitution, by which I mean this. He thinks it means something real, that the letter of the Constitution indicates a real meaning that abides from time to time. And he thinks that the Constitution has in it also a spirit that ennobles that letter. Uh, I made the point that the Declaration of Independence supplies something like the final cause of America. He loves that too. And he's got the skill to separate the two, to understand that they have different functions, that the Constitution is legally binding in a different way from the Declaration of Independence. So I just think that he's the most skillful man I know in public life and making those distinctions that are fundamental to the country. Just a few months before Justice Thomas came here, Justice Antonin Scalia died, and Justice Thomas began his commencement address by talking about Justice Scalia. Was Justice Scalia also a great Supreme Court Justice? Oh yeah, very much, very much. Um, he was prolific. He was, uh, he was a personality even in his official capacity, in, in the way he wrote. Uh, and he was an advocate for a line of thought that uh, I don't regard as the fully greatest thing I ever saw about the court, but a great thing and a wonderful thing in the context of modern uh, politics because we're at the place now where the Constitution means whatever the heck they think it means, and then they claim that that was the original purpose of it. Explain that. Who believes it means whatever the heck it means, and how did that happen? Well, William Brennan is the single most uh, authoritative spokesman for that, but Anthony Kennedy recently, right? Um, uh, what do they think? They think that... Uh, uh, you just have to make this distinction. Take the word nature and take the word history. Uh, nature refers to something that abides. Uh, uh, the sun comes up in the east and goes down in the west, right? Natural. That's how it works. Trees grow up. Natural. Uh, history. That's a measure of motion in time and of things that change. Which do you think is authoritative? Uh, William Brennan thinks that everything is change. And once you think that, if you think that some fundamental things, that all fundamental things are natural or abiding, then as you cope with the change around you and necessity, your job is to try to conform yourself to what nature requires in its fullness. But if you think that everything is change, then the next step might be, let's get control of the process of change. Let's make everything the way we want. And uh, that's, we become the standard. I'm teaching a course on that, this very term where we're reading Arthur Kersler and C.S. Lewis and Winston Churchill and 
who, and George Orwell, and Aldous Huxley, right? And they all wrote about that, all at about the same time. And they saw the horror of this conversion from nature to history. Well, the court is on to that now. And what they do is they take the fact, a great fact, that the Constitution was written to be flexible because you can't write a 4,000-word document that dictates in detail what everybody does in the future. Of course, the founders knew that. But they take that, that profound truth about the way we reason, what prudence is, what choices are like in human beings, an eternal feature of human beings, and they convert that into something else. It, it, it's great distinction, the Constitution, is it can mean whatever we want it to mean. They sometimes call it the living Constitution. Uh, what do you think of that term, the living Constitution? Well, uh, in this day and age, uh, it's, it's a, a very great artfulness. It's like the use of the term liberal, right? The term liberal means free. I am a liberal, big liberal, you know. But I'm a conservative now, right? They, they got the term liberal. Well, living, right? What are you for? Dead? <laughs> well, that's just it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and, and, and conservatives often use living constitution as a kind of pejorative. Yeah. And I think that we're, we're, we're conceding to them a term that is really useful. Yeah. The constitution should be alive, <laughs> Very even much. if it has a kind of permanence. Amen. That makes you and me, John Miller, weird conservatives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly right. It, it is meant to live because of the justifications for it that are in the Federalist Papers and other places. And remember, the Constitution doesn't contain a justification of itself. The Declaration of Independence does, right? It explains why it is, what it's for. It gives the reasons, right? Um, that's the whole purpose of it. The Constitution is a form. It's a plan. But when you reflect on that plan, and when the people who wrote the plan reflected on the plan, they described it as something that accords with human nature itself and also in the, the order of the universe. So the Constitution should live forever if people remain people and nature remains nature. Now let's jump into your lecture a little bit, the specifics of that. And you point out early on that the Supreme Court is Article Three of the Constitution. Some of these other courses when we've talked about the Constitution we pointed out Congress is Article One, and that's not random, right? The Congress's position has a kind of pride of place as Article Number One. And these are separate but equal branches of government. What does it mean that the courts are in Article Three? Uh, well, uh, there are two reasons why I think the order makes sense. Uh, one of them is um, uh, they go <laughs> in the order of proximity to the sovereign people. The Congress is closest to the people. The president next closest, the courts farthest. But the second thing is, they go in the order that they actually go in when the government operates. If the government is lawful, then the first thing is the passing of a law. Legislature acts first. And then if the government is lawful, then the Congress, not the Congress, but the president executes the law. That's second. And then, of course, there will be disputes arising from the execution of the law. And it's only after the law is passed and executed that these disputes arise and go to the courts. And so the courts come third in the process. And so they interpret the law. They interpret 
the Constitution, but the other branches also have a constitutional obligation, don't they? They must also interpret the Constitution as they go about uh, passing laws and executing laws. What is the responsibility of the President and Congress to think about the Constitution as they do these things? Well, uh, so first of all, we way overstate uh, the court's role in interpreting the Constitution, because that's not mainly what they do. What courts do mainly is, you know, you, John Miller, you, Larry Arn, are accused of the following thing, did you do it, right? And they make an independent determination, often with the jury of civilian people, did you do it or not, right? And usually it's clear what the law says. The interpretation part is a you know, it's always there, but that's not the prime thing. It's just somebody independent to look and see where the facts are, right, and how they relate to the law. So, you know, the, the judicial review thing, the big thing at the Supreme Court level, that's a deduction from the way things are set up, but don't mistake it for the staple. I've had these three young men that I know very well, in fact, a fourth from before I came here, who clerked on the Supreme Court, and they remind me that most decisions on the Supreme Court in this very divided age are nine to nothing, right? Because mostly they're just saying, yeah, this, they said this, but, you know, it's not, it's facts. Now, about the president. So imagine yourself the president or a congressman. If uh, you're the president, your effective job is to give orders to other people who go carry them out. If you're the a congressman, your effective job is to vote. You know, they have votes every day in the Congress. Well, they, they work really three and a half days a week. But uh, um, they have votes all the time, right? So you go in to vote. How are you going to vote? The Constitution requires that every officer in the federal government take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. That means when the president gives an order, he is required to think about that duty to which he swore personally and officially to perform. So that means they have to have constitutional interpretations. And they're supposed to. They're commanded by the document. Understand, the oath that the president takes is the one that is specifically stated. The actual words are in the Constitution. The ones he, d he reads when he takes the oath of office on Inauguration Day, he's reading from the Constitution of the United States. Of course he has to have his own opinion about that. And we lose sight of that today. That's why it annoys the daylights out of me when the Congress sues the president. Uh, because, you know, heck, they've been given a bunch of powers. They ought to use them. And they ought to use them to defend their powers. And they ought to want to do that. But in this bureaucratic age, the Congress has delegated the law lawmaking authority to a big bureaucracy, and they've become a bunch of toy poodles. Actually, I don't want to insult, insult toy poodles. There's something weaker than that. So I'm thinking to 2002, when President George W. Bush signed the McCain-Feingold campaign finance uh, uh, speech law. Uh, Congress passed it. Bush signed it and issued a signing statement where he cited serious constitutional concerns about this law. If a president has, and, and that this will get worked out in the courts, presumably, right? The, the, the people in robes will figure out what this thing really means. If a president has serious constitutional concerns about a law Congress has passed, should he not just veto it? Were it not 
for the ignorance of the man. That would be disgraceful. That's exactly what he should do. Go look at the many times that Lincoln, in beginning with his first inaugural, talks about his constitutional duties. And these are the things that I have to do. Right? This is not a world of choice for me. I took an oath. Right? Why did that good man, why did he not take that opinion? Why would he say that thing in public? Right? I, I just, I, I, I must say, I gasped. I can remember like yesterday when I read that. I gasped when I read it. Wow. And what does that mean? He's the chief executive of the land. What about the oath? We have nine Supreme Court justices. Why nine? Uh, well, there's no good reason except that's the number we've settled on for a long time now. And, it's not, and it's not in the Constitution. No. This, this surprised me when it was pointed out to me some years ago because I thought it was in the Constitution. And it's not. It no. does not say how many. No. And there have been other numbers for long periods in American history. Uh, seven for a long time, if I remember correctly. Uh, it's better not to have an even number. Um, then, you know, they're bound to reach a decision. Uh, but, you know, and that's just, but the Constitution doesn't say that. You can have an even number all you want. We have had even numbers sometimes, have even number right now because of Scalia's death. Uh, the court can function, and uh, it's not like, you know, people, we have to break out of something today, by the way, because we think the court can't function, right? Well, it, it is functioning right now, has been for months. But the second thing is, that doesn't mean the society can't function. It's not like, you know, do you, do you personally wake up in the morning and think, I better check the government and make sure everything's okay before I go to work, right? You, you know, America starts with the society and its people, and the government is for them. And, you know, just listen to the press coverage. Uh, isn't the implication so commonly that every good thing that happens happens because the government does it and that everything has to wait on them and if they're disarranged, then we're all suffering? I mean, there's the joke among conservative people that goes around all the time. Uh, Congress is reconvening this week. The liberties of the American people are in peril. Yeah, there's something to that. That's why I like the fact they work three and a half days a week. That's <laughs> yeah, that's why you take, take more vacations. I should say, because I know a lot of them, congressmen, when they're any good, they live a very tough life. And for us, they don't make a lot of money. Most of them, you know, they make very good money, but they can make more usually somewhere else. Often they do when they resign. They've got to usually keep two residences. It's expensive. It's a strain on the family. It's a, it's a tough life, and the ones who do it well deserve honor and don't get as much as they deserve. The ones who do it badly, that's a different case. And it's toughest on the best. It is. Now, you, you, we, we, so we've had nine Supreme Court justices for a long time. We currently have eight because of the death of Justice Scalia. We talk about the vacancy on the Supreme Court, but if the Supreme Court doesn't say you need to have nine, is there even a vacancy right now? Well, there's a statutory vacancy, right? The, there's a statute that sets the number. And so, yeah, under that statute, but the Congress that passed the statute could repeal it, could revise it. And right? say eight is enough. And, the, and you know, then Obama would veto it probably. But um, 
But the, uh, it, uh, as you rightly point out, the, the Constitution is silent about the number, but also silent about the schedule of replacing them. So if the statute says eight, does the Congress have an obligation to consider a nomination and fill that vacancy? If, 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 the if the statute says nine and we have eight, what is the obligation of Congress then to, to fill that seat? Well, the obligation of Congress is defined in two ways, and only two that I know of. One is it's, it's defined by the oath that the congressman can take to do, and, and I mean ultimately, by the way, the oath that they take to uphold the Constitution. And then the second way is people can vote them out. And so they'll be in the wrong if their understanding of the Constitution is something other than what they do. But the remedy for that is they could lose an election, and they do, often. So, I, I, you know, the, the Constitution is not of such a nature that it tells things like that in details, except where it does. But it's only 4,000 words long, right? So it can't have a lot of that in it. So the Congress, you know, partly you're asking around about the fact that there's a... Uh, Scalia's spot has not been fulfilled, and the president is very critical of the Congress for not doing that. Well, in the end, that's the thing that's going to get settled in November, right? What do people think? Well, we're running out of time. I've got one more question. I want to follow up on that. President Obama has nominated Judge Merrick Garland for that seat. Uh, the Senate, in its advise and consent role, uh, has not held a hearing. Uh, there will be no vote, apparently. Uh, is, number one, is that okay? And then number two, what would you advise senators to do going forward into 2017, perhaps, if there is still a vacancy on the Supreme Court? Well, in 2017, there's going to be a new world, right? I mean, there's an election in November, and it's an important one. And the Senate is up for grabs. Uh, it's not, not clear to me who's going to hold the Senate right now or have a majority in the Senate. But when that changes... And, you know, people are critical of Ms. Mitch McConnell for not doing something about that, right? Mitch McConnell is the majority leader right now. He doesn't have any way to know if he'll be the majority leader on the day after the election or in January. And so another attitude he could take if it pleased him is, I'm going to get somebody through right now so I can have an influence on it and probably get somebody better in case we lose the, lose the Senate. That's a calculation he should make. After the election. He, he could make, right? I mean, should I say should? He could make, right? He's made a different one. And people should remember, he's giving up something because of that. He's, he's not going to go to a dinner party with a guy in 12 years, if he loses the Senate in 20 years, and say, yeah, I got you through, and now you're on the Supreme Court, right? And those things mean something to Mitch McConnell because, especially on freedom of speech, he's one of the best senators. He opposed that McCain-Feingold and personally sued, I didn't like the lawsuit part, to try to get that thing overturned. But, but another, but, and just remember, when, when Mitch McConnell says, uh, we're not going to do anything until after the election, who's he given greater control to? He's giving up some control of his own. He's giving control to us. We can be influential. Right? If you care about this issue, he's saying to the whole world, whether you agree with me about politics and judges or not, if you care about this issue, go vote. He's saying that. I have a lot of trouble being critical about him, with, uh, uh, to, of him about this. I even think it's honorable. 
President Arn, we're out of time. Thank you very much. This concludes week one of Hillsdale College's online course on the U.S. Supreme Court. To learn more about our courses, come to our website at online.hillsdale.edu.